So I get to talk to you guys this morning about the subject of eternal accountability. That is the concept that how we live our life here on this earth has an appreciable, appreciable influence on the quality of our eternity. Craig uh, had a slide last night, if you remember, where he had a bridge and he had three things listed. There was hope, there was fear, and there was biblical love. And he listed those three as motivators for us to live a holy life and to better conform our life to Jesus Christ in this earth. And I think Craig did a great job of succinctly and eloquently kind of wrapping up in a bow uh, this this talk or the concept I'm going to try to talk about this morning. And my job this morning is to uh, unwrap that bow and uh, try to make you guys struggle with this a little bit and think through it deeply. And hopefully we can do that this morning. But this is a, a biblical truth that has had enormous influence on my thinking, an enormous practical influence in my life in terms of being something that has helped me, I think, uh, better understand and better live my life in a way that's pleasing to God. And so I hope that uh, I can stimulate your thinking on this topic this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that everything that we do here at this retreat and every day at home is for the purpose of love. Help us to consider how to stimulate others to love and good deeds. Father, I pray that I would do that during this hour. I pray that they would be your words and not mine. I pray that you would help direct the attention away from the speaker and to the author of these truths, you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so before I dive in, I, I really want to tell you exactly where I'm going with this talk. Um, so I kind of want to start with my, my premises and then hope to massage those out a little bit. So I'm going to compare salvation on the one hand with eternal rewards on the other. And I want to be very clear that salvation is a gift. It's a free gift of God. And as a gift, it is in no way, shape, or form based on your works or your merit. God chooses who he wants to choose for reasons that are his and his alone he chooses you to one of two places. Chooses you for glory or chooses you for destruction. There's nothing that you do to earn salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So salvation is not based on works. It's not based on your merit. For Again, for reasons that are God and God alone, he chooses some for heaven, some for hell. On the other hand, eternal rewards is the biblical idea that we gain reward in heaven or we suffer loss in heaven based on how we live in this earth. We are accountable for our works in this earth. In this life, we will be judged for our works in this life. And the quality of your eternity 
will be based on your works here in this life. Our works will influence how many treasures we receive in heaven. Let me say it a different way. I'm going to quote Jerry from earlier. Heaven is not the same for all believers, and hell is not the same for all non-believers. Let me say it another way. By God's grace, as Christians, we receive forgiveness for sins, but God's forgiveness does not eliminate accountability, does not eliminate consequences. It doesn't eliminate consequences temporally, and it does not eliminate consequences eternally. Every man in this room is motivated by hope, hope for future gain. Every man in this room is motivated by fear. Hope and fear are two sides of the same coin. We hope for future gain and we fear future loss. Both are God-given sources of motivation for us to live a life that is pleasing to him, to conform our soul to Jesus, to prepare ourselves for the day that we meet him, to prepare ourselves for our eternity with him so that we can have a better relationship with him, which is the reason he made us. So I want to talk about these motivators for us further as we go into this talk. We're going to start with this verse, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. 19 through 21. I'm going to have Matt Calfin read these three verses. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what I want to do in this talk, the first half I want to ask and answer a series of four questions regarding this passage. And then the second half I want to take you through a handful of verses in the New Testament that I think uh, are great ways to view the concepts we're going to talk about here uh, in Matthew six nineteen through 21. And we'll kind of help us hopefully massage those ideas out a little bit. But first we'll, we'll ask and answer four questions here, Matthew six nineteen through 21. Several years ago, I heard a speaker here at this conference say that his definition of thinking was asking and answering questions. And I'd never heard that before, but that made a lot of sense to me. And uh, I do think that uh, thinking about the Bible and how to apply the Bible and the truths of the Bible and the commands of the Bible in our life is uh, you know, as essential a part of the Christian life as there is. So learning how to think well is as important a concept in in living the Christian life as there is. So asking and answering questions. So the first question we're going to ask is, what is treasure? So in this passage, what does Jesus mean by treasure? He says, don't store up treasures on earth, but do store up treasures in heaven. Just go back briefly to the Greek. The Greek word there is thesaurus. It means the place in which good and precious things are collected and laid up. If you look at uh, the English definition, there's a lot of various definitions because treasure is a a very common word. But the definition I found that I think really captures the essence of the context 
here in Matthew six nineteen through 21 is something that is very special, important, or valuable. For the, so for the purpose of this talk, that's really the idea of treasure that I want to impart to you. Something that is very special, important, or valuable. And I think it's helpful as we think through this passage to make a distinction between the words possession and treasure. So let me define possession for you. I'm just going to use possession in the very common everyday usage of the, of the word. A possession is something that you own. It, and that can be big ticket items like your house, your car, or other expensive stuff. It can be small ticket items like your socks, your silverware, or whatever else. And everything in between. I just mean it in a very uh, common everyday sense. It's the stuff uh, that, you, that you own. It's your stuff. So treasure is something that is very important to you, very valuable. Possession is just the stuff, your stuff that you own. So the question is, can you possess something without it becoming a treasure? Can you have a possession and not have it be something that's very special, important, or valuable? So I make this distinction between possessions and treasures, treasures, because I think it's uh, important to point out that Matthew 6.19 is not a command prohibiting storing up earthly possessions. It warns against storing up earthly treasures, and I think that's a big difference. It can't be a prohibition against storing up earthly possessions, because if you think about it, that'd be impossible. Every man has, to some degree, and there is a large spectrum from wealthy to, to poverty, but every man has possessions, whether it's the shirt on your back or a coin in your pocket, or the food that you're going to have for dinner, or uh, everybody at some point in their life has something that would be defined as a possession. So the command is not a prohibition to storing up treasures. I'm sorry, storing up possessions. The command is a prohibition to storing up treasures. So the question on the table is, what do we consider a treasure? Have our possessions on earth become our treasure? And I think this is a passage about what it is that we consider treasure. What, it, what is it that we consider valuable? And I think if we're thinking clearly, our earthly possessions, no matter how much earthly value they have, they don't necessarily have to be our treasure. And on the other hand, you guys know as well as I do how easy it is for the stuff in this life, no matter how cheap or expensive it is, no matter how important or unimportant it is, it is so easy for that stuff, for our hearts to, to be attached to them, for them to become important and valuable to us. So Matthew six nineteen through 21, I think, ask the question, what is it that we are investing our lives in? Are we investing our lives on the things that will make us rich in this life? Or are we investing our life in the things that will make us rich in heaven? This passage is a call for us to become expert appraisers of value. It's a call for us to change our truth system so that we know what truly is valuable and we can order our life accordingly, invest our life accordingly. All right, second question. Where is my treasure? So none of us have the ability to check our heavenly bank account. That's an obvious statement. So on this side of the grave, 
there is absolutely no way that we can objectively know how well we are storing up treasures in heaven. Nevertheless, this passage is a call for us to examine our lives on that very question. The difficulty in obeying Jesus' words here becomes immediately obvious. Who in this room, who has ever lived in this life without attaching importance to earthly possessions, to our stuff in this life? To be human is to attach importance to these things. And I think intrinsic in Matthew six nineteen through 21 is the idea that to store up treasures on earth is the natural state of man. Who among us in this room this morning would not be deeply affected if you found out that your life savings disappeared? All of us would. Who among us would, would not be completely devastated if your wife or your kid came down with cancer this morning? All of us would. That's the natural state of man. And again, it points to the obvious difficulty in how do we apply Jesus' words here to our life. We find that our heart easily becomes connected to earthly things. And that's the problem. That's the problem with obeying this verse. When we have two different value systems motivating us, how do we, how do we work through that? How do we obey what Jesus says here to store up treasures in heaven? So I challenge you to think through your own life, your own mindset, your own thoughts, to see whether your heart, your mind, your soul is more deeply connected to earthly treasure, your stuff here on this earth, or to the stuff, the things that will lead to treasure in heaven. Deep inside you, Deep in the marrow of your soul, would you allow God to take away your most treasured things in this life? Your job, your wife, your children, your health, your 401k, on and on and on. Would you allow God to take away those things if it meant more treasure in heaven? And I think that's exactly the point of this passage. I think that's easy to say in theory. But in reality, I think that's a scary proposition. You're saying, God, I want as much treasure in heaven as possible and you can do whatever you want to me in this life to make that happen. I'll do whatever it takes to get it. When you say that, everything's on the table. So are you right now storing up treasures in heaven or storing up treasures on earth? Let me stop uh, right there and see if there's questions. Um, you talked about the, the possessions, um, and I was looking over Mark chapter 10 and just wanted to get your, your thoughts where the rich young man is, is asking Jesus how to inherit eternal life, and Jesus, after listing the commandments, says, um, <clears throat> you know, and Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Sorry, was there a question? Just wanted to get your thoughts in regard to, you just mentioned possessions. Yeah. And so he's, he's saying literally, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have. Yeah. Not, not some, he says all. Yeah. 
So I think that's uh, a verse that every single Christian has to read and think through and struggle with. And to what degree does that apply to me specifically? Uh, and uh, versus is that specific for that the rich young ruler? And that is not an easy verse. Uh, and that requires enormous uh, thought through, I would encourage you and everybody in this room to think through exactly what Jesus is saying there. I don't have a simple answer. James. So I, I feel like with physical, material possessions, it's easy to evaluate this proposition. Are, are you treasuring or not treasuring them? Yeah. How do you make that evaluation on something like your wife or your children? And I kind of feel like if you were to lose them, that's kind of too late to find out in some ways. Yeah, uh, those relationships are obviously God-given to you. They are arenas in your life that you work out how to best obey God, how to best please him. I think how you love your wife will be high on the list in term, uh, and one of the first things that you'll discuss with Christ on your judgment day. There's enormous importance to those relationships. They carry a lot of weight for us. And it is 100% natural to treasure those relationships. I think the point that I am trying to make is that the question we should be asking is, how do I relate to those, how do I approach those relationships in a way that will lead to the most treasure in heaven? And am I holding on to those relationships tight, that they are mine, I am trying to control them? Or am I a steward of what God has given me? And the correct way to view that is, God can take that from me anytime because those are gifts to me that I do not deserve they are not mine. So am I thinking through that properly? That all those things he can take away, you know, by the time we get home, he can take those things away. And how will I approach that in a biblical way? Um, so, you know, just bringing up that one verse, um, me just being a very, and I'm, I'm always thinking, uh, just the way I perceive it, you know, just bringing up that one person, you got you to gotta think, he's asking the king of kings. He's asking Jesus Christ himself, what should I do? That doesn't mean you need to apply it to every single human being on this earth. No. It just, to put it in perception, though, maybe at that point in time, Jesus Christ saw in his heart, what you need to do is this. Now, I, I think what truly needs to be asked is where your intent is, where your heart is. You know, what you truly do value, where your treasures lie. There's nothing wrong with loving your wife and kids. But, you know... What, what does it really all come to? And, and, and what I'm trying to, what I'm figuring out is just all giving glory to him. And if he knows your heart, you will be blessed and he can take and he can give. So, you know, that's just, that's just my two cents. I, cool. I, I appreciate those comments. So another hand here. Go for it. Um, so this is kind of more of a question that anytime I bring this topic up with a lot of people in, uh, you know, network or family, the, que the, the answer I always get, and I wanted to pose this question to you, is uh, 
well, I don't even know what those treasures are. And aren't I just going to throw them down before Jesus anyway? And won't it just be enough to be in Jesus' presence? That's like a treasure enough for me. So I don't even want to think about this. That's kind of like, I don't know if anybody else has that thought in this room, but I'm curious to know maybe more of the establishment of why do we even want treasures in heaven? Yeah. So really, I'd like to go there the rest of the talk and unpack those exact questions. I think those are great questions. And uh, yeah, so hopefully, uh, you know, I, I basically have the rest of the talk in mind uh, with, with that question. Yeah. Um, one thing quickly on uh, what he had mentioned about Matthew uh, and the man and the rich man. So what he also goes on to say is the disciples heard that and they were a little bit taken back too. And, and Christ said, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So what that leads me to believe is back to the motive of, of what you have with these possessions. Because if you take everything that you have from God, if you are doing God's work in your daily life and you understand that anything can be taken or anything can be given or taken from you at any moment, you can acquire possessions in this life and be doing things for God because you understand that nothing is yours. So you can, and you can use that to give back and you can use that to be a blessing in other people's lives. And if you are doing it for the right reasons, you can still make it into heaven because these things are possible with God, but not with man. That's the, that would be the, the contrast in that, right? Uh, excuse me. Well, I'd like to take some of those thoughts. Um, you guys are uh, going exactly where I want to go the rest of the talk, so I'm trying to figure out how to go go here or uh, or do it later. But the um, yeah. Let me just suffice to say at this point, how we handle the stuff that has been given to us, what we do as stewards with that, how we handle how we, what we have versus what other people have, and the inequalities that are obviously there in terms of uh, knowing that they're, they're actually not our stuff. I call them our possessions, but we all know that they are God's, not ours. Um, so knowing that it's what there's stuff that God gave us, he's the one that has authored what we have. How do we figure out what to do with it? Not just stuff, but our time, our abilities, our talents. How do we handle those things in a way that is best preparing ourselves for our judgment day? That's the question I want to pose to you and have you wrestle with today. One last <clears throat> Are you done over there, Steve? Okay. Uh, the the one thing about the the pearl, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like the merchant seeking out the pearl, and he finds it, and he sells all that he has to get in the possession of that pearl. Is the pearl the people? What is the pearl? And the merchant, I would probably figure, is probably Jesus. Leaving all. Yeah, I would agree with that. So yeah. Pearl is people. So would you say that that's a treasure that people in topics that we're talking about family and people in our lives that, you know, Jesus sought out the treasure of the pearl, which was, he came for the, 
I'm just trying to just. Yeah, I'd have to read through the, the passage to, to give you more clear thoughts. But he's, again, it's a question of value. What are you willing to give up? Give up and what, what is the return? I think the return there is, is eternity in knowing him in eternity. What is more valuable than that? You know, the pro, again, it's preparing your soul for that eternity with him. What is more important than that process? And that's the question. I'm going to move on because uh, won't uh, have enough time to get through everything. So, all right, let me go to the, the third out of four questions on this passage, which is how do we store up treasures in heaven? So you guys know as well as I do that this life is like vapor. Every man in this room is going to die. Whether that's this year or 50 years from now, it's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen in a short time in the final analysis. The Bible teaches us that on the other side of death, directly on the other side of death, we will face judgment with God. 2 Corinthians 5 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to that which he has done, whether good or bad. So every man is going to give an account to God for how he lived his life on this earth. If that's not scary enough to you, Jesus teaches in Matthew twelve thirty six that on your judgment day, you will give an account for every careless word that you spoke. If that's not scary enough, Paul teaches in Romans two sixteen that even your secret thoughts are going to be judged on that day. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, Paul gives an analogy of what happens on our judgment day. He describes our life's work as going through a fire. And if a believer's life consists of gold, silver, and precious stones, his work will remain upon going through the fire. And he will receive eternal reward. If a believer's life consists of wood, hay, and straw, it will get burned up upon going through the fire and that man will suffer eternal loss. So how does a man live his life such that he accrues reward and limits his loss? How does he live his life such that his life is considered gold, silver, and precious stones when he meets Lord Jesus? In other words, how do we store up treasures in heaven? So the question of how a man does this, I think, is the subject of much of the New Testament. But for, for right now, I want to focus on the words that Jesus speaks immediately following Matthew six nineteen through 21. I want to read uh, Matthew six twenty two through 23. Matt, if you could get that. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is an interesting passage. I think by I, Jesus means how we view life, how we view reality, what is truth. It's exactly what Jerry was talking about earlier, that question of what is truth. I think that's what Jesus means here by I. It's our worldview. Filter system is another word that we call it. To what degree do we view life accurately do we view reality the way that God views reality do we see truth the way that he sees it is what we consider valuable and important what God considers valuable and important is what we consider evil 
consistent with what God calls evil. So Lord Jesus connects storing up treasures in heaven with having a clear eye, having an accurate filter system. So I think it's having a clear eye, seeing life clearly, which is what helps us see treasure accurately and helps us appraise value, appraise treasure accurately. I think it's a generally true statement that every man wants to do good. Most men believe that. In general, their lives are characterized by light instead of darkness, by good instead of evil. Would you not say that most people think they're doing the right thing? In the Old Testament, it was commonly remarked of evil, rebellious men that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Notice what that's saying. It's not saying every man did what was evil in his own eyes. It's saying every man did what was right in his own eyes. They did not purposely do evil. They thought they were doing good. Even in the midst of doing evil, rebellious, disobedient things, they believed that what they were doing was right. I think that's an extremely important lesson for us. I think it strikes right at the heart of what Jesus is saying here in this passage about our eyes. Your filter system, how you view life, your truth system is extremely important. There stands a good chance that your eye is not clear on any number of issues that are important to God. You were not born with clear eyes. Nobody was. Clear eyes do not happen by accident. And they're certainly not developed passively. Everything that you've been exposed to in your life thus far, your family, your education, watching TV, driving down the street, music, you name it, all those things have helped shape your worldview, help shape what you believe to be right and wrong. Do not underestimate the power of the culture around you to shape what you think is right, what you think is important. First John 5.19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is currently the ruler of the world. That doesn't mean that everything that's not Christian in this world is overtly demonic. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that this, rule, this world is ruled by a very powerful being whose job it is, whose number one desire is to get you to take your eye off the ball. And the, the ball is that we are developing our souls for eternity. We're preparing for our judgment day. We're preparing to relate to Jesus and know Jesus for eternity. If he can take your eye off that ball in any way, shape, or form, he's done his job. And so we're constantly surrounded by influences that are trying to take us in that direction, often very, very subtle. So again, Matthew six nineteen through 21 is a call for us to be expert appraisers. Being an expert appraiser requires us to see reality clearly, have good eyes. We must learn to see value the way that God sees value. We can't be expert appraisers if we don't transform our minds to God's definition of value and of truth. So storing up treasures in heaven requires a clear eye. So fourth question, fourth and final question I want to ask on this passage is how do I develop a clear eye? 
I do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Thanks. We'll, uh, second half of the talk, we'll get through a few more slides. All right. So how do I develop a clear eye? How do I ensure that my view of reality is accurate and matches God's? God tells us that he will give us the ability to see reality and truth clearly if we are willing to be obedient to him, if we're willing to do his will. John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. One of the great verses of the Bible, first of all, because he connects obedience with love. Everybody wants to talk about love and everybody thinks that they have a monopoly on love. Pay close attention to what John says here in 1421. Love equals obedience to God's commands. Secondly, what happens when you obey? Jesus says, I will disclose myself to you. I think that's filter system. That's truth. That means I'm going to help you see reality clearly. You were not born with a clear eye. I'm going to help you. If you're willing to be my slave, to do my will, I'm going to help you see truth clearly. So if you want to store up treasures in heaven, you have to develop an accurate view of life. If you want to develop an accurate view of life, you have to be willing to be a servant of God, be, be completely obedient to him and his will. Matthew twenty twenty five through 27, Matt. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you, you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. So I don't think it's a coincidence here that Lord Jesus says, if you want to be great in heaven, be my slave. He's saying the exact same thing as what we just talked about. Obedience leads to greatness. If you want to be great, learn how to be a slave in this earth. All right, we're going to go second half. I'm going to, like I said, go through a few passages in the New Testament, go through a few more slides here. Um, and I want to kind of unpack some of these ideas that we've talked about, about being motivated by gain, learning how to appraise value, and, and, and look through a few other passages through those eyes. So first we're going to go with Luke nine twenty four through 25. Matt, I'm going to have you read again. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? All right, so I want to ask a question. Is the goal of life to lose our life or is the goal of life to save our life? Here, lose it, lose it, lose it. Nobody else? Okay. So, yeah, I think the goal of life is to save your life. Jesus is telling us the process by which we do that very thing. The primary outcome is saving your life. The process by which you lose your life, he's given you instructions. He's saying, you got to lose your life. And again, that's connected to being his slave, dying to yourself. 
being his obedient servant. But it's not, the end goal is not to lose your life. Jesus is very clear here about what the end goal is. The end goal is to save your life. I think that gets back to the pearl question earlier. Losing your life is the process. Let me ask a second question here. On, uh, on verse 25, why doesn't Jesus want you to gain the whole world? I think if gaining the whole world was something of value, that's exactly what Jesus would want for you. But Jesus knows better than you and better than me what value really is. And he knows that gaining the whole world is of no value for your soul. The question is not whether or not Jesus wants us to profit or wants us to have gain. He absolutely does. He just knows that our gain and our profit is connected somewhere else. It's in eternity with him, and it's not here in this life. So again, that gets back to this question of appraising value. We have to transform our minds, develop our souls such that we see that value is not connected here in this, and, or not to be had here by gaining the world. Value is somewhere different. All right, let me go to, whoops. I don't have the, this next passage up, but Matt, I'm going to have you read Luke 22, 24 through 27. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I among you, as the one who serves. Cool. So the question on the table is, who is the greatest of the disciples? Disciples were asking openly in front of Jesus, who amongst us is going to be considered the greatest? How does Jesus answer them? Does he rebuke them for, for wanting to know that? Or even asking that question in the first place? Not at all. He doesn't rebuke them. Actually, he tells them exactly how to be great. So the surprising part here actually is not that he doesn't rebuke them. I think the surprising part is just simply how to be great. The answer that he gives, that's the part that's unexpected. And how is it that he tells them to be great? He says you be great by becoming a servant. You be great by serving others. And that strikes again at the heart of what I'm trying to, this truth uh, we're trying to unpack here. There's a process by which we go after gain in heaven, in greatness in heaven, and that's to give up our, our life and to die to ourselves in this life. All right, First uh, Timothy 6, 5 through 8. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, 
who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So I want to point out the word here, gain. If you read this at face value, it almost seems like Paul is talking out of two sides of his mouth. Verse 5 says, men who suppose that godliness is a means of gain... And he's, he's uh, rebuking that. He's saying that's not how you should view it. Godliness is not a means of gain. Then, in the very next verse, he says, wait a second, but God, godliness, godliness actually is a means of great gain. So what is it? Which is it? I think the reason, it seems like he's using gain in two different ways here, is the first gain is a temporal gain, and the second gain, in verse 6, is eternal gain. And we see that all the time in the Bible where earthly value, earthly currency or whatever is uh, talked about in a negative way. But when you start talking about gain, value, riches, whatever word you want to use, and all of these words are used, if you start talking about that in an eternal sense, uh, universally, it's described in a very positive way and something that we should be after. And that's exactly, I think, what Paul says here uh, in First Timothy. One more thing I want to point out here is this word contentment, being content. I think that contentment is absolutely an avenue or a mechanism by which we accrue treasure in heaven. This, here is an arena by which we are tested and by, by which we will be judged on our judgment day. Contentment speaks again, to our filter system, our worldview. And the question is, how do we view life? Do we view the trials that we are going through, the hard things, as who is the author of those? Who is in control? Who is my problem with, so to speak? Are those things authored by God or by somebody else? If they are authored by God, are they for my good is going through trials, going through hard things, is this for the development of my soul so that it will go better for me on my judgment day, or is it not? I think that's what the Bible teaches. And again, the Christian life is transforming your mind so that you have it more in focus, that tough stuff that happens to you is, one, authored by God, and two, for your best interest. And if you view life that way, all of a sudden you understand contentment takes on a whole new meaning and you're able to execute contentment if you have those truths in place. And so again, I think contentment is so closely connected with this process of of us trying to store up treasures in heaven. All right, I'm going to have Matt read one more passage, then we'll, we'll take a few more questions. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each other's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, 
as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the context here is a desire for holiness. Peter has just written in the previous verses, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So Peter is saying, in your pursuit of holiness, know that you will face judgment by God the Father and therefore you must conduct your life in fear. So, so often when this subject comes up, the subject of eternal accountability, of fear, of, of hope, people argue, Christians argue, that we should not be motivated by gain. We should not be motivated by fear. But what we should be motivated by is love and gratitude for Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. So many people in this modern day have a hard time with the biblical idea that we should be motivated by gain or fear, basically motivated by anything other than gratitude. So I love these verses in 1 Peter because I think they encompass both motivations, the fear and gain or the, the hope and fear motivation and the love and gratitude motivation. So here in, in verse 17, Peter states unequivocally that we should be motivated by fear. It's a command. Peter leaves no room for argument here. But then look at verses 18 and 19. He gives the argument for motivation from love and gratitude. I don't know how you could capture the essence of why we should be grateful to Jesus better than how Peter does it here in verses 18 and 19. So that's why I love this passage. I think Peter's arguing both. that they're not mutually exclusive. They complement each other. If you want to show gratitude and love to Jesus, use fear of judgment as a motivation. It will enhance your gratitude and love. And if you want to use fear as a motivation, use gratitude and love because it will complement it as well. So I think we need to get it out of our heads that those two concepts are mutually exclusive. I think they're additive. They augment each other. I think if you remove fear from the equation and you do not use fear of God, fear of judgment as a tool in your quest to live more pleasing to God, you're going to miss out on a wonderful and effective tool that he's given you to motivate you to prepare your soul for heaven. Fear is a wonderful and a necessary adjunct to gratitude as you seek to break your will as you bend your needle to Jesus. So let me give you an example. I know a lot of men, Christian and non-Christian alike, that struggle with sexual sins. So whether it's addiction to pornography or something in that realm, I think it's safe to say in a room of men, room this big of men, some of, some of the men here are under bondage to, to that type of sin. So if that describes you, and if you're one of the many modern-day believers who do not embrace fear as a motivator, let me ask you a question. How effective has love and gratitude for Jesus been to you in your quest to stop sinning? Would you like something more in your arsenal? So I challenge you to add fear of judgment into your arsenal to help you break your these sinful habits. 
It's a biblical idea. It's a biblical practice. And just to kind of further take that thought or take that thought further, what if you understood that committing that sin one more time led to loss in eternity? What if you understood that you had to review that sin with Jesus on your judgment day? What if you understood that continuing to sin in that way affects your assurance of salvation? What if potentially it's putting your soul at peril? Peril of an eternity in hell. Would those thoughts help you in your battle against sin? I'm not saying that it is 100% perfectly effective because we will remain sinners until the day we die. But I am saying that it is a unique and helpful and effective tool that God has given us to help us break the unwanted sin in our life. And you ignore Peter's words here at the peril of your soul. I've got one more passage to read and, uh, and give some thoughts on, but let me stop here and take some questions, if there are any. Yes. Could you perhaps uh, give your definition of fear? I've heard a lot of definitions and a lot of words yeah. used. To, like, for example, um, just want to throw this one out there and see if you would characterize it as a fear um, in Hebrews twelve, twenty-eight, it says, "Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe." So, would you put that into the characterization or the definition of fear? I think it's included in that. Uh, I don't remember the Greek word there for reverence, but typically, when fear is tra- or when the Greek is translated into fear uh, in the New Testament. Uh, phobias is the Greek word years used, and that is just straightforward fear, you know, quaking in your boots, uh, trembling, you know, falling down, trembling, scared would be the best way I could put it. He can send you to hell. Matt, I'm going to have you read uh, the Hebrews passage. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is... They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So I love this passage. Those who live and speak like Abraham make it clear that they are seeking something. So my question for you this morning is, what is it that you're seeking in life? What is it that you want out of life? What is it that you consider gain? If you don't think that God wants you to be motivated by gain, you're never going to address these questions clearly. And I think these are the exact questions that God wants you to spend your life thinking about and asking yourself. The patriarchs were seeking their own gain, and it was because of this, not in spite of this, it was because of that, that God said, 
that he was not ashamed to be called their God. So I want you to embrace eternal reward. There's a purpose for it. And to ignore it, or worse, to deny it, presents a great hindrance to the Christian life. So again, what is it that you define as gain? I think it's a question that is worthy of all of our considerations. Men and women who define gain accurately and pursue it with all that they have are those who God calls great. Let me point out one more passage, or sorry, one more word in this passage. The word thinking. Guys, what is it that you think about? What is it that you spend your thought life on? Is the focus of your thought life on the country that you came from? Or is it the country to which you are going? Your home, the place that you have not been yet. Is your thought life temporal, meaning earthly? Are you thinking about stuff in this life? Is that what occupies your thoughts? Or are you thinking about God, eternity, heaven, biblical truths, biblical realities? Are you thinking about that country from which you came out? You guys know following Jesus is hard. You have to count the costs. We're welcome to stop doing it at any time. And I think if we're thinking of the world that we came from, there's ample opportunity to return. I have uh, one more passage. Sorry, I told you one more. I meant two more. Philippians 3, 7, and 8. Some final thoughts to just kind of conclude the talk here, and then I want to give you one application. Often, when this talk is given at various venues, the thought comes up, well, I just want to know, what if, what if uh, treasure... What if gain in heaven is just knowing Jesus more? I think that that is actually right on the mark. Note here what Paul calls calls knowing Christ. He calls it the surpassing value. It means a value that exceeds everything. So we're motivated for treasure in heaven that motivates us to break our will and to live a life that is going to best lead us to knowing him in eternity. But ultimately, might it be that really what treasure in heaven is, is in some way, shape, or form, somehow connected, somehow related to just knowing him more, better access to him, more revelation for him. Those are all speculative questions. God simply does not tell us in the New Testament what treasures in heaven looks like. He just says, believe it. He says, it's going to be worth your while. I just want you to believe it. And he doesn't, and I think purposely, does not give us any definition to what they actually are. But I can't imagine, especially based on what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3, that somehow, that they're somehow connected to knowing Jesus. In that bridge diagram, Craig, that you had yesterday, the greater value, or what was the greatest value. There was good value, greater value, greatest value. If I remember right, it was knowing Jesus. And that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Ultimately, I think this life is about changing our minds, transforming our minds such that that is actually defined for us as the greatest value.
So I just have another minute. Uh, let me give you one application. Application is um, not, it's, uh, it's subjective. So this is not uh, the gospel truth, what I'm going to suggest to you, but I would take it as a consideration, take it as a suggestion. But I do encourage you to develop your own convictions on how to apply what we've talked about today. But one potential suggestion for you, I want you to take some time. You could start with an hour, something very realistic. And just you know, take your cell phone away. Make sure you get some, an hour of quiet, an hour of no distractions. And just think on the simple thought of what is gain for me? How can I live my life in a way that I am seeking gain? And how can I define gain, Father, the way that you define gain? What do I need to do differently in my life? How can I invest my life better to follow that better? So God, what does it mean with my unique skills that you have given me, the unique gifts that you have given me, the unique uh, circle of men that you have placed me in, that nobody else in the world has been placed into. With all these things, God, that you have given me uniquely, what does it mean for me to live out purpose and seek gain? What does that look like for me? Take an hour of your life and think on that one question and that one question alone. And if you want a quick bonus application, for those of you married men, talk about that question with your wife interact with your wife on these exact questions. What do you consider gain? How, how is your wife preparing for her judgment? And what is the connection between your leading your, your wife as the head of your household and preparing her for judgment? Very much encourage you to have those conversations for yourself, with your wife, and really for anybody that will listen. Thank you guys for the time this morning. Thanks.